All right, uh, Micah is our text tonight. It's uh, Minor Prophet number six, so we're about halfway through these guys. We're doing a quick start series where you do an overview of the entire book, uh, bird's eye view or an overview, or I like the quick start idea. You know, everything today is so complicated. When you first got computers years ago, you had manuals, you know, stacked up to the ceiling that you had to read just to figure out how to type a letter. Now everything is intuitive or else you throw it away, right? I mean, if you can't figure it out in a few minutes, that's why I really honestly can't use Android phones. I just, I cannot figure them out. Uh, I just, maybe you're a lot smarter than me. I'll, I'll admit that. How's that? But I cannot figure out what's going on with Windows or Android. Um, the Apple stuff just makes more sense to me. And, and uh, you know, so, quick st- so everything comes with kind of a quick start guide that says, hey, here's what you need to know right now to start your car and listen to a CD. And, then, and really, that's all you need to know uh, and stuff. And then you can get deeper into it later on. So quick start, Micah. Pastor Chuck Smith often told the story about the Christian farmer whose cow gave birth to twins. How many of you have heard Chuck tell this story before? It's, a, it's not unique to Chuck. It's a famous story. Farmer's cow gave birth to twins. He told his wife they should dedicate one of those cows to the Lord for the blessing that it was. Some months later, his wife noticed he was looking very sad. His wife asked why he was so sullen, to which he replied, I have bad news the Lord's cow died. Get it? So he was going to keep the cow and the Lord's cow died. It's our nature to sacrifice that which costs us less or little. In the key passage of Micah 6, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, God will address the question of what he requires in terms of sacrifice. And it's nothing less than your life as a living sacrifice. Now the book opens with some background information. In verse 1 it says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Micah's name means, Who is like the Lord? He said to be from Moresheth, which is a town located about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. The time during which he ministered is identified with the reigns of three kings, This would make Micah a contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah, who lived and ministered in the 8th century B.C. The opening chapters of the book pronounce God's judgment on both Israel and Judah. This is the time of the divided kingdom after Solomon's death, uh, the kingdom divided into ten tribes to the north called Israel and two tribes remaining in the south uh, called Judah. Uh, The capital of Israel was Samaria and the capital of Judah remained Jerusalem. He's going to be God's final prophet to the northern kingdom before it falls, and he was the only prophet sent to the capitals of both kingdoms, both to Samaria and to Jerusalem. So he has some unique attributes as a prophet. There are three distinct messages in this book, each introduced by the word here. Chapters 1 and 2 are a message. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 are a message, and chapters 6 and 7 are the third message. Micah's first message is about the subtle power of influence. In chapter 1, you would see that the people in the rural areas were not as isolated as they thought. They were doing the same things that the people in the cities were doing because they were imitating the sins of of the cities. It, it's interesting for us because, you know, I, 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 I never considered San Bernardino a big city, but 
you know, the Inland Empire, Riverside County, Orange County, the LA Basin, all of that, pretty big area. And, you know, and then we move here to Central California. And there is an all-pervading attitude that remains here in Central California that we are a rural, righteous group of people that, you know, are kind of shunning the influences of the rest of the world. And in some areas, that's very true. Uh, but if we're not careful, we let our guard down. We think, oh, you know, everything's fine. Our kids aren't going to get involved in the same kinds of things that kids get involved in down in the wicked, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah areas of, you know, northern or southern California and stuff. And, and you know, quite honestly, um, kids are kids, adults are adults. We, we all have a, a tendency to imitate things and to take on attributes that are happening everywhere else. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're rural and, and we have uh, some wonderful values here and I love living here, but we're not above corruption. I mean, you know, uh, and just because we all wear Levi's to funerals uh, doesn't make us, uh, you know, separate from the world. And, uh, you know, there's a, you know, do I, would I rather live here? Sure, absolutely. But there's still a lot of things that we need to be concerned about. And so there's a subtle power of influence. Micah compares Israel to a harlot in, verses, in verse 7 of that chapter because the worship of pagan idols on the high places involved paying to have sex with prostitutes. That was kind of their, uh, their way of, of bringing money into the church. Uh, God's people were like an unfaithful wife who had become a prostitute. And so uh, we'll pick it up in verse 8 where he says, Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, God's judgment was coming. It was coming right to the gate. I'm sure that the people of Judah would agree Israel deserved judgment to the north. But then a shocking statement comes at the end of verse 9. The same judgment was coming against Judah in the south because Judah had succumbed to the influence of Israel and was imitating her sins. Uh, in Judah, of course, they thought they were safe because they had Jerusalem and they had the temple. Uh, for a while there in the divided kingdom, it was interesting because the Jews in the north would still come down to Jerusalem in Judah to worship. And so that's why up in Samaria, they finally established their own worship to keep people uh, from being you know, from going down to Jerusalem. Uh, but as we saw in our studies in Jeremiah, the Jews in Judah thought, well, we might be blowing it. We might not be as, as good as we could. Uh, and, and we, you know, we hear these warnings, but after all, we have the temple and God's not going to do anything to us. He's just, you know, we're safe. And in fact, one of Jeremiah's messages, you remember, was he stood outside and he says, you say the temple, the temple. And so anytime anybody got rebuked, uh, they would just say, well, we have the temple. And so, you know, we, as if it gave them extra grace that, to go farther into sin than the northern kingdom. And so Micah here, here he's announcing that, hey, you, if you're imitating the same sins, then you're headed for the same judgment. Um, now, perhaps the people of Judah in the south might still repent. There's some discussion about whether Micah actually went around naked, wailing like a jackal and mourning like an ostrich. Let's just say he was serious about repentance. Uh, I don't know if he actually did that or if that's figurative language. We do know that the Old Testament prophets did some crazy stuff. Uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, even Jeremiah, they all acted out their prophecies many times. Uh, and it is not 
beyond the the realm uh, of of you know prophetic acting that he actually went around naked or mostly naked for a while, wailing like a jackal and mourning like an ostrich. And um, so, you know, seriously, I'm just happy we live in the New Testament where, you know, the hardest thing we face is are we really going to share with somebody or not, not whether we're going to leave the house with no clothes on because God said to. And then, and, you know, I agree, people that do that, they're, they're kind of whacked out. God's not asking us to do that today, so I'm not going to do it anyway. So anyway be horrifying. Chapter 2 opens with an indictment of some of their sins. It says, woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Uh, So there's, when you read these lists of sins and it's more about their attitude and uh, where they're coming from, what, you know, these are particular sins, but basically Micah is pointing out that, that all they do is think about how to devise evil against others because they are in power. And they have power over others and they use it to their advantage to uh, gain material wealth. The chapter ends with a word of encouragement for the far future of both Israel and Judah. In verse 12 it says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Each of Micah's three messages includes a word of hope for the far future of the Jews in their millennial kingdom. And so this is definitely a book about judgment, judgment to come, both on the northern and the southern kingdom, but uh, it is there, it, included in it is the understanding that God's promises to Israel will not ultimately fail. Uh, and we, um, we like to hammer that truth because we find it in the scripture over and over and over again. And so much error exists out in the Christian community in uh, different groups who have forgotten that God is still dealing with the nation of Israel as his special people. Uh, he set them aside temporarily. Uh, he's dealing with them a certain way right now while he uh, calls out the church, but he will pick up his dealings with them as a nation again uh, after the church is removed. And um, when you start to confuse Israel with the church, that's when you start to get into a lot of problems about God's nature and about particular doctrines and things like that. And so, uh, you know, unless you keep Israel and the church separate, you'll, you'll never understand Bible prophecy. It's impossible to understand the flow of Bible prophecy if you confuse Israel with the church or think that the church is the new Israel, those kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, God, God has unique dealings with the physical descendants of Abraham and with the physical descendants of Abraham who are also spiritual descendants of Abraham by being born again, and he has special dealings with Gentiles, both unsaved Gentiles and saved Gentiles, and um, we need to keep all of that separate if we're going to understand stuff. And so a lot of times, if you're talking to a friend of yours and they, you know, they seem to be giving you a different view of the end times or of the church than you've heard, uh, you might ask them some questions about what they think about the nation of Israel uh, and, and what is God's plan, and, and you might find that they're confused about that. Um, now, 
Chapter 3, Micah says, Hear now, O heads of Jacob. This is a message number 2. It includes chapters 3, 4, and 5. If you were to read through all of those chapters, you'd see two recurring themes, the course of Israel's future and the care of Israel's king. Both of these themes are presented in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. So let's read those. It says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You see the course of Israel's future in verse 3. From our vantage point, where we sit today in history, you see Israel's past, present, and her future. Israel's past and present is summarized by the statement, therefore he shall give them up at the time Micah said these words, he was describing the scattering of Israel among the nations of the world, uh, which we have seen historically. Uh, from, and, and it's a scattering that we're talking about after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Uh, and so Micah is talking about how God would scatter the Jews throughout the earth uh, after their rejection of Jesus Christ. And it's a it's a mind-boggling miracle that Israel is still a nation after that persecution and that scattering and that there would be a unique group of people who would come back together in their homeland and have a preserved language and share that language. I mean, the, the kinds of things that we take for granted, I don't know if we take them for granted, but they're, they're common to us, are absolute miracles. There's just... The existence of Israel by itself in, it, in their ancient homeland is a miracle, a modern-day miracle that, that absolutely is the foundation of uh, much Bible prophecy. Uh, so that's what they're talking about there. Israel's future is summarized by the remainder of verse 3. There will be a time of labor and giving birth. These are images Jesus would use in his Olivet Discourse to describe the future Great Tribulation period. He says here, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, uh, and then God will regather and restore Israel in the millennial kingdom. Um, we don't know everything there is to know about prophecy. And by we, I mean Calvary Chapel or you know, those of us that teach here. We don't claim to be prophecy experts. But at the same time, we don't think it's really that difficult to follow out the chronology that the Bible gives us in terms of what's happening in the world. Uh, and, and especially the book of the Revelation we feel is easy to outline, uh, you know, in terms of what is ahead of us and what's going to happen. And so you see Jesus revealed in chapter 1 of Revelation. Then you see the church age in chapters 2 and 3. In chapters 4 and 5, you see the church raptured to heaven and this heavenly scene as the Lord comes forward, takes the scroll out of the hand of his father. And the great tribulation begins from chapter 6 through about 19. Then in chapter 19, the Lord returns. Chapter 20, there's a thousand-year kingdom. Chapters 21 and 22, there's a judgment and then a new heaven and a new earth. I mean, it's very, it's, it's super chronological and super logical. In the individual chapters, you sometimes get more or less detail about different periods, but we, we, we really do know what's going to happen. And Micah is talking about these things. And it's interesting, I, I love what Peter says in the New Testament. He says, the prophets didn't know what they were saying. They, they desired to understand more about what they were saying. So Micah is talking about, at one minute, he's talking about Israel being scattered throughout the world, and the next minute, he's talking about what we would call the millennial kingdom. And, and it's, you know, in the same breath, 
under the inspiration of the Spirit and not really understanding it the way we do. Uh, Israel's leaders were wicked. In chapter, go back to the beginning of chapter 3, says, Hear now, O heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones? who eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. Israel's leaders were corrupt. The nation would be scattered, but God's promises would not fail. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it. The latter days are the future Uh, again, is the kingdom on earth or the millennial kingdom. This phrase on the top of the mountains is a subtle reference to the care of the coming shepherd. I told you this section was about the course of Israel's future and the care of their king or their shepherd. Uh, On the top of the mountains could be translated table land. Table land is what we might call a mesa. It's a superior grazing land in the mountains that shepherds seek out and prepare for their flocks. So the Lord's house, the future millennial temple, will be built on a magnificent table land which will exist in Jerusalem only after Jesus returns and the land has undergone remarkable geographic changes due to his setting his foot on the planet and the subsequent earthquakings. And so as the second message closes, the Jews of Micah's day were brought back to the present and to their immediate future. In chapter 5, verse 10, it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I'll cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus will I destroy your cities. It's kind of a sad chronology uh, or uh, listing rather of some of the things that were going on uh, at that time. And these verses describe a time of conquest and judgment by which God would purge them of their pride and their idolatry. Now the third and final message, chapter 6 and 7, is appeal from God to his beloved nation. So chapter 6 begins, hear now what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint. And you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Bala, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. God's people were accusing him of wearying them. The word is sometimes translated burdened or wronged. One Bible translates the word wearied as molested. And so the Jews were saying, well, God, you molested us. You wearied us. You burdened us. They were accusing God of having somehow wronged them, probably by allowing foreigners to uh, overrun them over the years rather than protecting them, even though God warned them that that was going to happen. God rehearses two incidents from their history which show that his intentions are always to protect them from foreign nations. He redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. That's a big one. And when Balak hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel, God prevented him from doing so. He blessed Israel instead. That's one of my favorite Old Testament sections, you know. This guy is doing all he can to earn uh, his blood money to curse the children of Israel. He just can't do it. 
You remember, finally, he says, look, I can't curse them, but if you can get them to sin against God, he'll kill them for you. And, and that's what uh, the Amalekites did, uh, or the, and the Moabites, rather. Uh, and so God says, look, you, you are, you're accusing me of letting other nations overrun you, uh, but I've always protected you from other nations until you bring these things upon yourself. It, it, I, I just think as a, we ought to own up to our, our own behaviors. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't the world be a nicer place if everybody just admitted what they were doing? Isn't this the problem you have with your kids sometimes? Don't you? You just want them to say, I broke it. I broke it. You know? Not years later when they're adults saying, yeah, you thought Gene did that, but I actually did it. I ate the chocolate chips or whatever and stuff, you know, and, and uh, you know, just own up to what you've done. I, I, I mean, we all do this. I, I'm, I do it as well, you know, but I've seen it, so I don't want to come across like I'm self-righteous, but, but I'm, I'm on the other side of the desk so often in counseling, and you just, you know, if you would just say what you did, if you just own up to it, we could move on, you know, especially in a marriage. But nobody wants to give ground. You know, it's like I, I, I've, I've taken this ground. I own this ground. I can't give ground to my wife. I mean, you know, what, what would that be like, you know? Or vice versa. And so just own up to it. Be honest and, and let's move on. And so as the book closes on behalf of his people, Micah pleads with God. He says in verse 14 of chapter 7, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage who dwell solitarily in woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. And as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They'll crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They'll be afraid of the Lord, our God, and shall fear because of you. Again, these verses look far forward beyond our own time to the return of the king. He will establish his chosen nation, Israel. All the other nations will lick the dust and crawl. In other words, they will bow down before God whether they want to or not. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Micah breaks forth into praise in verse 18. He says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. And so while there's a a wonderful application of these verses to us because they reveal the nature and the character of God, what Micah is saying is you're going to bring Israel into, into judgment, and you're going to bring Judah into captivity, but your dealings with us as a nation are going to continue throughout history into the time of the millennial kingdom when you will have, uh, through Jesus Christ and through the great tribulation, a, a reason to pardon our iniquity, pass over our transgression, etc., etc. In other words, Israel is going to be saved in the end. And, and this may not mean a lot, to you and I reading this, you know, but if you're a people that are, I mean, if you're sitting in Jerusalem and Nebuchadnezzar is knocking on your door and you realize 70 years of captivity are ahead and a lot of terrible things are, are going to happen beyond that, it's a pretty big encouragement to know that God's promises are not failing. Uh, you are failing, but God's promises are not failing to uh, your descendants and he will make it all work out according to his plan. 
God pardons, he subdues iniquity and passes over transgression, casting our sins into the depths of the sea. He does that because he delights in mercy and is a God of compassion. Now, all of that depends on having faith in Jesus Christ. But that is what God is like. When people say, oh, this God of the Old Testament, well, here he is. Yes, I'm going to, I have to judge you because look at what you're doing. I can't, I can't let you go on like this. You'll destroy yourselves, and there won't be a Messiah if you continue along this path. So I have to step in, but this is what I want to do. I want to pardon and subdue your iniquity, and I've made a way for that to happen, but you've rejected it. And so this is the God of the Old Testament. Uh, Micah 6.8, easily the most recognizable verse in the entire book, preceded by an important question. In verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn uh, for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The Expositor's Bible Commentary calls verse 8 the greatest statement in the entire Old Testament. I I don't know if I would say that, uh, but it it certainly is an amazing statement. There seem to be two clear parts to this statement, a revelation and a requirement. The revelation is found in the words, he has shown you, O man. There's something God shows you, something God reveals to you, and the requirement is found in the remainder of the verse. It tells you what you're supposed to do. God shows you something, then tells you what you're supposed to do, and what he shows you is what he is like. Today, we have the clearest picture of what God is like in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember the What Would Jesus Do campaign? It only worked because what Jesus did has been revealed to us on the pages of the New Testament. We could only say, well, what would Jesus do because we see what he did for the 33 and a half years of his life and especially the three and a half years of his ministry. Jesus shows you what God is like. You are then supposed to show others what God is like. And the clues here is that you are to do justly, love mercy, and literally you humble yourself to walk with God. I find it hard to expand on those concepts, so let me present this quote. One commentator says, do justice, first of all, everywhere and always, and then yet further towards your fellow men, show mercy. Do acts of kindness and favor where no merit creates a claim of justice. And finally, as toward God, walk with him humbly in constant communion and fellowship, recognize his surrounding, all-pervading presence, and adjust your spirit and your life to a due sense of that presence. In the last clause, the Hebrew is especially expressive, bow low to walk with God, as if only so could sinning mortals hope to come near to the Holy One. Uh, Another way of putting this would be the New Testament having the mind of Christ, or put on this mind as Jesus had, or think uh, humbly of yourself. And so, you know, justice, we love justice, but God says you should do that all the time, and then you should look to show mercy, and you should always be humbling yourself in your walk with God, not exalting yourself, humbling yourself to minister the gospel. God wants changed lives. He doesn't want ritual external sacrifices. The people say, what do you want? And God says, this is, this is what I want. I want a changed heart. I want you to have a genuine relationship with me where you humble yourself in my presence. He doesn't want your dead cow. 
And he doesn't necessarily even want the one who lived. See, that's the thing. That's where you could expand on that joke. It's funny because we all give God, we want to give God our dead cows and keep the living ones. And God says, I don't, I don't really want any of your cows. I want you as a living sacrifice. Amen.